Welcome to the Apologia Podcast, the audio-only archive of the Apologia YouTube channel. Note that some content was designed to go with visuals, but the imagination can be a powerful thing. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider giving it a 5-star rating on the podcast app you're using now to help us reach more people. Or, since this endeavor is ad-free, consider going a step further and supporting us for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash apologia. But for now, let's get to the episode. Part of the Apologetic series, posted December 28th, 2020, titled, Why We Know the Story of Jesus Isn't a Legend. They added the miracle accounts, they added the resurrection, they added the high Christology of Jesus, until finally you have the divine Christ of Christianity. For this recipe and other great tips for creating a flourishing religion, contact J. Warner Wallace. Welcome to Apologia, where a former Christian takes a look at the claims of Christians. If you're new to the channel, want to take a second to tap on the subscribe button, so that you'll be notified when new science, theology, and news videos come out. If you've been watching this channel for a while, you'll know that I contend that the Gospels and Acts are merely the codification of decades of stories about Jesus, previously whispered from one believer to another, growing with each telling in the name of convincing more people to join the movement. Essentially, the Jesus of the New Testament is a legend. Not that there might not be a few details inspired by real events. Maybe there was an actual apocalyptic preacher named Yeshua who got himself killed by the Romans, just as there might have been a Paul Bunyan or a Johnny Appleseed. In any case, when I saw that cold case detective J. Warner Wallace posted a video to tell us why we know the story of Jesus isn't a legend, I had to click to find out where I was wrong. It starts with Jim's existential doppelganger, Lee Strobel, to toss in the first softball question. So what about the challenge that things change over time? That, that yeah, uh, right. you know, things get more elaborate and, and um, Jesus goes from just being a wise teacher to right. a supernatural son of God over a period of time. Right. Well, you trust your Gospels? Oh, the earliest Gospels, Mark, you know that, right? The last Gospel is probably John. That's good. Jim acknowledges that Mark is the earliest written and that John is the last. And you trust these things. Well, in Mark, there's no passion story. There's, Jesus is even, hardly even described as divine at all in Mark. Oh, but by the time we get to John, 30 years later, oh, he's already God now. That's the, kind of the accusation, right? That Jesus changes over time. I mean, that's part of it. It's uncontroversial that stories of Jesus were passed around for decades as verbal stories before they were written down, presumably expanding in detail and scope. Also, after John was written, the stories undeniably continued to expand by more and more writers, with the Gospels of Thomas, Judas, Peter, Pilate, and others. The four Gospels in the Bible are just the middle act in this legend development history. Because the Jesus of Nazareth, he would say, was very simple, and then over time he got distorted. They added the miracle accounts, they added the resurrection, they added the high Christology of Jesus, until finally you have the divine Christ of Christianity. Maybe not in that exact order, but that's the general idea. Yeah. I suspected that too, because I was a committed philosophical naturalist, I rejected miracles. So I thought those miracles cannot have been written early. Something was written early, but that stuff wasn't in there. That stuff had to be late. And so I just needed to know, was the, mir the miraculous nature of Jesus in the earliest accounts? 
So here's how we tested it. I wonder if it'll have something to do with the crime scene. You know, if you have a crime scene, and I find a casing in the crime scene, and then 30 years later I bring the casing to court and I say there's an extractor pin mark on the casing that identifies it to the suspect's gun, that's why I want you to convict this suspect, you could rightly ask, well, how do I know that that extractor pin mark was on the original? Someone could have pulled it out of property 15 years later, etched on the extractor pin mark, put it back in property, and now it's been altered. That's a fair accusation, I think. How do I know that that mark was on the original? Here's how I know. I go back and I ask the question, was there an officer there back in the day, 1980, who wrote a report, a supplemental report, where he described the extractor pin mark? Because if he did, I know it wasn't added later. And then he gave it to somebody. The next guy who takes that piece of evidence, he writes a report describing what he received from the first officer. And then the next officer does the same thing. And we do it through time to the crime lab and from the crime lab all the way to the courtroom. And now I have report after report after report to see if anything's changed on the casing. Well, there's a new, this is, by the way, called the chain of custody. Link by link, we look and see who is each link and is it changing. Do the same thing with the Gospels. Absolutely. Let's do the same thing with the Gospels. Let's take a look at the Gospel of John. Was he really that divine in the beginning? Wait, why would we start with John? You just said that John was the last written Gospel. The last Gospel is probably John. Modern scholars, even the most evangelical, acknowledge that the author of John would have had access to Mark if indeed it wasn't used as a direct source or written in a direct response. Did Detective Wallace avoid Mark because Mark isn't thought by anyone to be an actual eyewitness of the events described? But some people do assert that about John? Well, the first officer at the scene who wrote a report was a guy named John. He described what he saw in Jesus. But how do I know that he really wrote that? As far as I know, we don't. The author of John never identifies himself as John, and the few places where John is referenced... It seems quite clear that the author and John are different people. Well, who did he give it to? Who is the next link in the chain? This ought to be interesting. Who did the author of John give his book to? Three guys were his personal students, Ignatius, Polycarp, and Papias. The Apostle John's personal students, you say? Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, please buckle up for a moment as we do a whirlwind look at the so-called evidence behind these claims one at a time. We have only one extant work attributed to Polycarp, the Epistle of Polycarp to the Philippians, which might technically be a composite of two letters, but what's important for this discussion is that it's all of the writing of Polycarp that we have. It's not long, and there is no mention of any kind of John. It's strange. There's an early martyrdom of Polycarp biography of this church father, written by someone else. This comprehensive document also doesn't claim that Polycarp was a disciple of John. Odd? No. We have to wait until decades after his death, before next generation Irenaeus, who Detective Wallace will talk about in a minute, makes the first vague allusions toward any Polycarp-John connection. In Against Heresies 3.3.4, Irenaeus wrote, Polycarp also was not only instructed by apostles and conversed with many who had seen Christ, but was also by apostles in Asia, appointed bishop of the church in Smyrna. This is 180 AD, and by this point, the word apostles was being used as a generic term for anyone sent out to preach the Gospels, not specifically for the twelve disciples, 
At very least, no mention of John. The next phrase waters it down further, because Polycarp's interactions with those who saw Christ, again, not necessarily the Twelve, but maybe casual observers, was merely that he conversed with them. Carrying on, Polycarp had received this one and sole truth from the Apostles, that, namely, which is handed down by the Church. So, whatever Polycarp received from the Apostles, Irenaeus went out of his way to specify that it was what the Church was teaching. Polycarp got the Apostle teaching indirectly, just as Strobel and Wallace receive Apostles' teaching indirectly. There are also those who heard from him that John, the disciple of the Lord, going to bathe at Ephesus and perceiving Serinthus within, rushed out of the bathhouse without bathing. So, apparently Polycarp was aware of an anecdote about John. But Irenaeus didn't hear it directly. A friend of a friend heard that Polycarp knew a funny story about John. Not even that Polycarp himself witnessed the event, just retelling it like any bard might. That's a far cry from Polycarp being the student of John. Now we jump ahead to the 3rd century Christian author Tertullian, who, like Detective Wallace, is attempting to build a case for succession. In Prescription Against Heretics 32.2, he claimed, As the Church of Smyrna, which records that Polycarp was placed therein by John. Now first, Polycarp became Bishop of Smyrna in the mid-2nd century, so John would have been well over a hundred to have been involved. Possible, but unlikely. Second, this directly contradicts the earlier 2nd century source that says Polycarp was installed by the Church of Asia. Certainly, Irenaeus would have said John, not the Church of Asia, if that had been the known story. This is merely another example of the kind of legend building around church fathers that were supposed to be investigating about Jesus. It's an epidemic. Flash forward to the late 4th century, before Jerome finally becomes the first to declare that Polycarp was a disciple of John. That's not a chain of custody, that's legend. Another of the second generation church fathers, Ignatius became bishop of Antioch in the second century. Of the 15 letters that claim to be from Ignatius, scholars affirm only seven of these as possibly authentic. Oddly, in none of these letters does Ignatius mention John, his supposed mentor, even in his letter to Polycarp the other person alleged by Wallace to be a student of John. The only explicit tie of Ignatius to John is found in the epistle of Ignatius to the Virgin Mary. However, this letter is universally rejected as authentic, having been written not in Greek, but Latin, and in the 5th or 6th century, not the 2nd. Ignatius' inclusion in this list can be from church tradition only, since this is one of those rare cases of literally no textual evidence for a claim. Things are marginally better for Papias. Unfortunately, none of Papias's writings survive, other than when he is quoted by later church fathers Irenaeus and Eusebius. In these quotes, Papias never claims to have known John, but 2nd century theologian Irenaeus does describe Papias as the hearer of John, and a companion of Polycarp. Now, I'll save this for another video, but Irenaeus really doesn't think highly of Papias, seeming to want to discredit him rather than uphold him. And my impression of Papias is that he's a bit of a bragger and exaggerator, who would definitely name drop John if he could. But that doesn't factor in for what Detective Wallace is saying, because we don't have any quotes from Papias, spurious or not, about John at all. 
let alone something that could affirm this so-called chain of custody that Jim is attempting to establish. Okay, back to Jim. Now, after John died, these three guys became leaders in the local church. If you didn't have John's gospel, you could just ask them, what did John say about Jesus? It's possible that if you had a time travel machine that you could have done that. But how does that help us? None of these three men wrote about what John said. None of them wrote about actually knowing John. Their only connection to John is church tradition that began after they died. Based on the evidence, we'd have to conclude that we have no reason to believe that these men would have anything at all to say to a time traveler about what John said to Jesus. And they wrote local letters to local congregations. They're not in your Bible. They're ancient documents. We still have them. We can read them and see what did they say they learned from John. Yes. Please, please, please go read what these men wrote for yourself. Don't take my word for it, and particularly don't take Jim's. No extant writing from Polycarp, Ignatius, or Papias claims any lessons directly from John, or even to have known John. These are claims made by the church centuries after these men died. And they had a student named Irenaeus. Irenaeus grew up in Smyrna, where Polycarp was bishop and his writings do recount memories of having seen Polycarp as he grew up. But to call him a student of Polycarp might be a stretch. But we've already exhausted what Irenaeus has to say about Polycarp's relationship to John earlier in the video. Not much. I've been quite unable to find any link between Irenaeus and Papias or Ignatius, not even in Detective Wallace's own article on this topic. If you know of any connection, let me know in the comments. But until then, this seems to be another spurious claim. And he had a student named Hippolytus. You're going to think that I'm a broken record here. But once again, we have a lot of writing attributed to 3rd century theologian Hippolytus of Rome. However, you might already be able to guess that in none of this writing does Hippolytus claim to be a student of Irenaeus. In fact, we have to go all the way forward to the 9th century to find the first church leader Photius of Constantinople, to claim that Hippolytus was a student of Irenaeus. According to the Oxford Dictionary of the Christian Church, this assertion is doubtful. I can find almost no one to even address it. Wallace is merely accepting very, very late church tradition here. And you can go through the entire land of history and look at each link in the chain. Let's do that. Hippolytus never says he was a student of Irenaeus. Nor is there supporting evidence for this beyond very late tradition. Irenaeus says he knew of Polycarp. That's not exactly a close student relationship. I find no historical connections at all to Papias or Ignatius. None of Polycarp, Ignatius, or Papias claim to have known John the Apostle. These claims were made about them later, vaguely at first, and then more boldly as the centuries wore on. This is exactly what legendary development looks like. The Gospel of John doesn't claim to be written by John, and I find the authorship tradition to be incredibly weak, but a topic for a video on its own. So, how is Jim's chain looking? This isn't an officer handing evidence to another officer and documenting it. This is more of an outside consultant implying that because police officers sometimes know of each other, we shouldn't worry about the fact that there's no paper trail on this bullet casing. You may not like it, 
but it starts very early. And the very first people that John talks to will describe him as being divine, claimed to be God, rose from the dead as God, worked miracles as God. Whoa there, Jim. Even if I restore your supposed evidence chain, I'm not worried about the story having its core elements in place by the second century and those carrying forward into the third century until today. No, I'm worried about this massive gap back here between Jesus and the first written account which isn't John, by your own admission. The vast majority of the legend building would have happened in the time of the oral transmission, in the 30 to 60 years between Jesus' death and our first gospel mark. Beyond that, I do think earlier creeds attest that the basic resurrection miracle claim was there in the early years, but all the extra circumstances around the tomb story and the post-resurrection appearances, the ascension, and so on, those kept on growing and growing decade after decade. It's what the evidence shows. This is the chain in the custody link that you need to worry about, Jim. The rest of the chain doesn't matter if you don't have this first one. Born of a virgin. That's actually quite a late one. Not in Mark or John, the books you've been talking about today. So you're stuck with this weird deal. You have people who are telling us something and they never change their story. And we can document it all the way back to the life of Christ. Sadly, no. We have all the way to the Gospels, which do not themselves claim to be eyewitness testimony, nor am I remotely convinced by Jim and others who just assert that they are. What do we do with this? What, did I, what, was gonna, what, what do I do with this? How about wait until there's sufficient reason to believe it before you believe it? And every way I tried to kind of look at it and see it was a lie, what's motivating him to lie, I tested it every way I could. I was stuck with it. I see lots of reasons for people to lie, or at least be hyperbolic in stretching claims, in order to defend their beliefs. I would even admit that on my cynical days, that it sure feels like apologists like Wallace are doing that very thing, making claims beyond what the evidence can support. But we don't need to assume anyone in the chain is lying. It is sufficient to propose that the people might merely be mistaken. And as Emperor Palpatine might say to the good detective, You will find that it is you who are mistaken about a great many things. Or, if you prefer Luke, Amazing. Every word of what you just said is wrong. For more of my analysis of Jim's cold case detective apologetics gimmick, tap on the Apologia vs. J. Warner Wallace playlist on screen now, and I'll see you over there. Later.